Welcome to the number one show and the source of truth for all things medtech. Here, we reveal the secrets and stories behind the investments, science, and commercialization of the medtech industry. Every week, we'll take you on a wild ride with the biggest names in the game, from entrepreneurs and investors who are shaking up the market, to healthcare providers who are revolutionizing the way we think and practice medicine. So hold on tight and get ready for a journey like no other. This is the State of MedTech. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And today's episode is about the professionals, both physicians, uh, med tech professionals, entrepreneurs, uh, who say, I'm working hard and I'm sacrificing for my family. And is that really the case? Or are we just really making a huge mistake and trying to convince ourselves otherwise? So today's episode is with Dr. Andrew J. Sauer. Dr. Sauer is the uh, is a cardiologist and associate professor of cardiovascular medicine at St. Luke's. I'm gonna get, get into his uh, background in a second. The reason why I have him on today is because of a incredibly viral post that he made. So uh, Dr. Sauer, for context, you know, I met him a few years ago when he was the, um, the chief um, of the University of Kansas's Division of Advanced Heart Failure Therapies and Cardiac Transplantation, which essentially he uh, founded and set up at a very young age. And so, like many physicians, Dr. Sauer was just on a rocket ship. I mean, he was the chief, division chief for a very uh, uh, a successful part department, was having all the success. But that was coming at the expense of his home life and his family. And so he actually took to Twitter and LinkedIn. He has a huge following on Twitter and he's been now uh, developing a following on LinkedIn where he was posting a lot about the, you know, success and failures of being a father, being a husband and, you know, being extremely vulnerable with um, what that means. And so let me read to you the post that he made recently. And the post he made, just for context, Dr. Sauer has about 15,000 followers on LinkedIn, which is a good amount. This is probably the most viral post I've seen in a long time. His post has 44,000 likes. Um, it's been viewed um, almost 2.1 million times. And actually that number's higher because he sent me that screenshot when it was at 32,000 likes at 44. So it, it might be close to 3 million impressions at this point. It has 1,746 comments and 1,070 reposts. That is insane. That is insane. And I'm, I'm leaving a link for this post in the show notes. So what is the post? The post was made on a Saturday night. So again, if you do any posting on LinkedIn, you know how difficult that is to get any kind of reach on a Saturday night on LinkedIn. And the post is of him and his uh, adorable uh, uh, daughter. And here's what the post reads. It says, Dear Dads, your most important job might not be what you talk about on LinkedIn. In fact, it might be frowned upon to talk about on LinkedIn. And that might be why we need to disrupt that mentality. Tonight, I just spent the evening with my baby girl, Beatrix May, for my first daddy-daughter dance night. Let me tell you, I didn't know what to expect, but she picked out this purple dress and another pink one, then asked me to pick which one she should wear. She picked out my shirt and tie, 
and in the photo she he's got a very nice uh pink tie matches her she dragged me on the dance floor and wouldn't let me leave then she fell asleep in my arms a few minutes ago i'm going to die someday and this image will be one of the few that will flash before my eyes in my final moments and that is the whole point of my life she parentheses among others is why i work and being a dad is my work i hope i have encouraged other dads your employer your client boss co-worker etc will for forget you tomorrow your son or daughter desperately needs you in the most ultimate way you cannot be replaced in their eyes never forget how meaningful your work is as a dad professionalism has its place but we work to live we don't live to work and so that really resonated with me as a new father because I personally believe in that. Um, there's a, a gentleman named Daigo Tanaka who's a very close friend of mine and actually a partner on, um, on a new project called OmniCreator. Um, and he was, and Daigo was actually someone who really inspired me because many years ago, Daigo left his extremely high paying job as a software engineer in Silicon Valley and started his own little consulting uh, uh, company. And I remember asking him like many years ago before I was in marriage, I'm like, why'd you do that? He said, oh, I want to spend time with my children. You know, I want to be there. And I remember it never, it, it always had an impression me. And, and lo and behold, here I am doing the same thing. I left my job in corporate America, started my own company. And I mean, it's a lot of work. But part of the reason is that as we speak, my, uh, my nine-month-old son is in the other room. And whenever I take a break, I just walk on over and play with him. I do that maybe three, four times a day. And so not everybody has that luxury, but I wanted to talk to Dr. Sauer because, you know, to have sort of a really open and vulnerable conversation about what it means to be a professional, but more specifically, what, it, what is it really about, right? Are we living to work or are we working to live? And what kind of responsibility do we have as men, as fathers, to our children, to our wives, you know, and spouses? Um, and so it's a fantastic episode. And I'm really excited to share this with you. And I've decided to also make this a CME event. So if you're a physician or a clinician listening to this, you can unlock an AMA PRA Category 1 CME credit. Just look in the show notes, click it, and then type a reflection to share what you learned. Um, and so with that being said, let's get into this fantastic interview with Dr. Andrew J. Sauer. Enjoy. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have a good friend of mine, an old friend, actually, uh, via the interweb. That's Dr. Andrew Sauer. We became friends a few years ago just through LinkedIn. And of course, uh, his amazing tweets on uh, hashtag cardio Twitter over on Twitter. Uh, but this is going to be kind of an, a, an interesting episode because uh, just for context, you know, as you heard in the intro, you know, Dr. Sauer um, often posts a lot of great content, specifically around like uh, self-development, leadership, a lot of posts that, in my opinion, are the kind of things that a lot of us should be doing, which is, you know, sort of being a little bit more vulnerable, putting it out there because you never know how that, that's going to impact and influence others. And, but Dr. Sauer isn't, you know, he's a physician, he's a clinician, a researcher, so he's not trying to become an influencer. But when he made this post on, which I remember it was on a Saturday, so this is, this is, if anybody does anything on LinkedIn, you know that Saturdays are kind of tough. Um, he put this post up about, you know, being a dad and prioritizing. 
And Dr. Sauer, when he made this post, had about 16,000 followers. He has a little over 17,200, 17,100 now. But this post just blew up. It's got 40,000 likes, 1,600 comments, uh, close to 1,000 reshares. Um, and that, that was just a few days ago. So I wanted to have him on the show to talk about the thing that many entrepreneurs and clinicians need to talk about, which is the balance of home life and work life and what that means, you know? So Dr. Sauer, thanks for joining. How are you doing? Good to see you again, my friend, and uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I think it's been uh, surprising to me how much attention this, like you said, Saturday evening post. I mean, I actually did the post after I got back from the daddy-daughter dance, and that really seemed to resonate with a lot of parents uh, and, you know, non-parents, everybody. Uh, certainly, I think what I thought was most encouraging in reflecting on some of the comments, and there's so many comments I haven't even been able to read them all, um, but seeing a lot of the dads out there who also are professionals, seeing them post similar types of experiences, you know, for one, I didn't grow up knowing much about little girls. I didn't have any sisters. And so daddy-daughter dances didn't exist in my little town where I grew up in, in Nebraska. So this wasn't really something I knew anything about until I became a father. And and my neighborhood, this is what a lot of dads do. And I showed up for my first one. And, and I think the picture really captured the moment really nicely. And, um, you know, ultimately, it was just a really dreamy experience for me with my daughter, Beatrix. And I think I just wanted to share that with the, with the world. And a lot of people really... Uh, were touched by it, apparently. And um, I think that the themes are just uh, fathers who are professionals and moms who are professionals too, but I think this was really struck a chord with the fathers out there who realize, you know, what I was trying to share is that, you know, your most important job, no matter what your profession, is really to leave that mark on your children and to raise them up, uh, to, to show them that, they, that you love them unconditionally and that you're there for them and to see the legacy that you leave behind uh, as you look back at your life. You know, one of, the, one of the lines in my post, which I think really captured people looking back at the comments was just acknowledging that, you know, when, when you look back at your life, there's, I believe that there's gonna be moments that flash before my eyes in my final, final moments of life. And, this was one of those images that I wanted to capture and preserve in my memories, because I, I think to an extent, that's about all we really have is our memories uh, as we as we go forward in life and we accumulate these memories. And and I realize, you know, it's not just about my memory of her and that experience, but a lot of people messaged me privately or put comments in about how this is also going to be a memory for her. She's she's four and a half years old and. And it'll be something she remembers forever too. So that's what we're trying to do for our kids. And I'm just trying to be a voice for normalizing uh, that that's part of uh, who we are. It's a big part of who we are and we should talk about it. Absolutely. And like, you know, like, let me point something out because, you know, we're both in, I mean, we're both in, in the field of medicine and in different aspects, me on the industry and technology side and for you on the clinical side, but, you know, uh, we're both very ambitious guys, you know, with our careers and everything. And I think that the narrative that we're used to seeing for a long time is this idea of like, you know, 
the physician or entrepreneur just hustling, working hard, putting in late hours. It's like, oh, I'm I'm sacrificing now for to make a better life for my kids later. But you know, personally, like I've just started to realize how broken that narrative is. You know, like even me, I mean, I have a, a new a, a, a baby boy. We just had him, and I and I remember thinking like, oh, like that's that's okay, like that's that's what I have to do. But then I look at the people who, you know build massive companies, made millions, if not billions of dollars. I'm like, do I want that life? Which is you waste all this time working hard to make all this money. And then you, now you're spending it to try and make up for that last time. And you're never going to make it up because not only is it the memories that you're trying to create, because that's all we get, right? Like taking kids on, you know, buying a, a nice house or going to vacation. It's all, it's all to make memories, but there's only one period where like my son is only going to be eight months old once in his life. You know what I mean? And uh, I think your post also, like I've personally noticed on my LinkedIn, other people like uh, fathers and mothers, like, you know, posting things about their kids and everything. And today, like for me, I hit, I, I, I just realized today, like I broke over 30,000 followers. And so I was like, Oh, this is a good time for to reintroduce who I am. And I would have normally do this, but your post was, of course, in my mind. And I'm like, I don't want people to know me as like, oh, Omar, the business owner, entrepreneur. So I start off by saying, hey, I'm a proud husband and father. And my picture, rather than a picture of me talking or doing all these things, I'm, I'm proud of my family. So I put a photo of my of my wife and, and myself and my kid. And part of that was because of the impact that you had with your post. And I just think it's good that more people should share this part of their life. Yeah, and I I think that um, we we do tend to think well, I'm I'm hustling as using the word that you used. I'm yeah, hustle culture. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting after it in my in my job because I want to create this legacy for my kids. You know, and that legacy word is kind of a, it's 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 a big word, and I think it it it's it's got an, a lot of it's an emotive word, and I think that we have we have to stop and think about what that means. And so for me, what I've started to reflect on is legacy is sort of like uh, this, I've seen this described in other ways by a guy in our field, uh, a kind of a luminary in our field. His name is Milton Packer, who said, you know, chasing this is how we chase immortality. So you know, ultimately. You could argue that having people remember us and having people remember what we meant to them and the impact we had on the world around us is really what immortality can look like. Because yeah. long after we're dead and gone, you know, we remain immortalized in the minds and the and the vision of our of the families that we've helped raise, uh, and in and and in medicine, it's it's also I think driven by the the patients that we help. Uh, you know, and I think that there's a lot of legacy consideration as you get into mid-career, whatever your career is. And I think you have to look back and reflect and say, okay, what, what have I done with my life? And what I don't want is to look back at my life and realize that the moments that really mattered the most to my kids, I, I didn't show up for those. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, I want them to have those memories of the daddy-daughter dance or you know, the big, the first, the, the first big hit at the baseball game, or, you know, was there when, you know, son got picked on at school and, you know, had to have the conversation with them about bullying and, 
you know, you want, you want your dad to, to have that conversation with you as a child. And so I think that these are the opportunities we have as parents uh, to step up and really participate in what is an investment in the legacy that matters most, which is the legacy we leave behind with our kids. And oh, totally. I think, yeah, I think that's part of why I think it really um, struck people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I like this concept because, again, like this is very much, you know, something that ambitious type A career professionals are going after, which is like, what's my legacy and my immortality, and everything. But like, you know, I, I heard this saying that like your memory, like you, you, your spirit and memory stays alive as long as the last person who's going to remember it. Right. And like, look, um, the queen of England who had like pretty profound impact on history and I mean, everything she died six months ago. When was the last time you even thought about her? Steve Jobs quite arguably had like the biggest impact on civilization in the last like few hundred years. Like I don't remember the last time I even thought about Steve Jobs. Right. And so it, it's just really easy to think like, man, my life is really insignificant. Like who, like who cares? And what, you know, I'm sure, you know, you might be able to relate, but like, I remember when I was a kid, um, you know, when I would have like a hockey game or track meet or something like, even, even when I was in high school, you know, when I was like, uh, you know, chasing after girls and everything. Cause you know, I was like, <laughs> you know, like you know, that age when, when I would have a game, like the first thing I, I, I cared about the most when I would like look in the stands is to see like, Oh, is, Hey, is my dad there? You know, did my mom and dad show up. That's all I cared about, you know? And right. it doesn't have to be, it's not necessarily about quantity either. I think quantity does. Yeah. But I do think that for for children, if you look if you look back and reflect on our on our own childhood, we all know that it really is just about having those moments where you really needed your mom or you really needed your dad to be there, and they were, and how that can have a dramatic effect on your your memories. I mean, we know that memory and emotion are are really tied together, and so the most potent memories we have are the ones that are really enriched by strong emotional uh attachment yeah whether it's a good or a good emotion or a hard emotion uh those are the things that create the memories and so what i want for my kids is for them to have the kind of memories that make them feel loved uh make them feel like they've that, that like they're rich you know in, in all the right ways right not mm -hmm. materially rich but that they're so loved and and loved in an unconditional way that that they know that they have that secure uh, stature with with me as their father, no matter what they do or fail to do in life. Because yeah. that's the other thing about our children is that they're gonna go out into the world and the world is extremely harsh. They're gonna be bullied, they're gonna be harassed, they're gonna be treated unfairly like everybody is. Mm -hmm. And you want them to be able to stand on their own two feet and be able to take on those challenges without the fear of failure, because they know that they've always got an anchor and they've got a foundation that they can always fall back on. And that's their parents, you know, and in my case, I want them to think about that and think, you know, I've got my dad, you know, my dad, he is going to understand if I disappoint the world, I can come back and talk to my dad and he'll walk me through what to do next, but he's not going to stop loving me 
just because I made some mistakes. And you have to, you have to imprint that on your children early or else they will be insecure about it. And they'll be insecure about everyone else in their life forever. Ain't that Uh, the truth, man. There's so many people of this is that, you know, you've got basically maybe the first 10 years of their life, maybe not even that much to build that healthy security in them. And so that's why these early years, I worry about the dads that say, well, I'll get back to, I'll get back to this when I retire, I'll get back to doing this kind of life with the when my kids are it's, older. It's gone. You only have a little window. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I told it. You won't get it back. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no amount of time. It's almost like, I don't know. I'm sure that you, you will be able to think of an analogy, but there's, there's some, some sort of like reverse compound interest where like the, the time, like, okay, maybe this is the way to look at it. Um, so your concept of time is way larger the younger you are because like, you know, an hour for my son, based on the number of hours he's been alive, it probably feels like a year versus an hour for me. Like that's why time speeds up. And so right now, one of the things that I'm trying to protect, and I'm actually like, I'm on a, I'm on a mission to, to, to financially, you know, do as well as I can, because I want to protect what I have, which is like, you know, after we do this podcast, I'm going to go walk over to the living room and play with my son for a little bit. And then, I mean, I do that throughout the entire day, you know, and I don't know if you, you may have seen this on Instagram or Twitter. There were these two comedians talking. It was the saddest thing I've ever seen where one guy was talking about his daughter and he started crying. He's like, you know, I've realized that I've been experiencing my entire daughter's, my entire daughter's life through the phone, you know, cause I'm like FaceTiming with her and everything. He's like, and I, I don't know if it's going to get any better. Like what, like, I can't think of a better example. I hate to say it like a, a failure. Like when people ask me, like, who's the like most successful person I know, I always tell them like, it's me. It's not because of the money my I'm making or my, my, my company is everything. It's because of like the family that I have and how much time I spend with them. You know, like that's, that's to me, like the example of success. And I see the same with you. What, what kind of got you on this journey? Cause this started like a few years ago, you know, with, you know, what, yeah. what was that thing that got you to start sharing so much of this? Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the right question, right? I mean, I'll, the short answer is falling short of what it needed to be failing. Uh, I, I'm doing it wrong. Um, as you were doing it wrong. Oh yeah. yeah. How, how, so, what did that look like? Can you, can, well, can you think take that, us back to that time? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, and I, I've been writing about this more and, um, I mean, the short version of the story is I was struggling with depression, I think. And, uh, you know, looking back, I mean, in, in spending more time with professionals today, uh, psychologists and, uh, people who take care of mental health, I've, I've been working on addressing that. And I think recognizing, looking back, I was depressed. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why people become clinically depressed. Um, but about three years ago, I was not in a good spot. You know, I was, extremely stressed out. I was spending a lot of time at work. I was coming home, putting the kids to bed, but I was kind of like a zombie. I wasn't really checked in. Like, like I wasn't really present, you know, I was there, just going through the motions, going through the motions. Right. And right. that's what I mean by quality over quantity. I mean, yeah, I might've made home for dinner, but my phone was ringing. 
text, text. You're physically there, but mentally you're somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it was there was stuff going on that needed to be dealt with, right? That's had nothing to do with my job as a parent, but it's just, it's just the mess of stuff, right? That we all have and it hadn't been dealt with and it got real bad. I wrote about this, uh, you know, I would put the kids to bed and then I would find myself in the basement, you know, pouring a couple glasses of scotch or bourbon. And I wasn't having a drink because I was really enjoying even the drink. It was, I was medicating myself. I Mm. was medicating the things that I wasn't treating the right way and getting my, getting my mental health in order. So I started making changes, right? I, I realized at one point it was like 1130 at night and I'm three or four whiskeys in and I'm like, what am I doing? Is I'm, I'm literally pissing away my life. What, right? what, triggered, what triggered you to have that thought though? What triggered, what, what, what did you see or th- can, can you think back? What, what, what triggered you I to just, think that? I was wallowing in self-pity and I remember feeling, I was, I was 30 pounds heavier. I was like, I didn't like who I looked. I didn't like who I saw in the mirror. I didn't like how I felt. I felt exhausted. Uh, I I was just kind of breaking. And I think there just, I just remember there was a moment where I was sitting there. There's no TV on. It's in the dark. It's 1130 at night. There's no reason why I'm not in bed. But I'm just sitting there sipping a drink. And I realized, like, I'm just trying to treat treat myself and this isn't healthy. And so I started making changes and it's been a process. It's been a journey, but the basic things, you know, I I frequently cite uh, James Clear's Atomic Habits because I really believe that book was part of my journey to change and make a pivot um, because he he talks about how everything is incremental and it's it's, it's daily discipline, the 1%, right? Compound interest really is the eighth wonder of the world, right? It really is. And it effect it, it and, and so I changed my time investments. I, I changed, you know, so I went out and got a Peloton. I talk a lot about that. That was about two yeah, years ago. I remember that. Well, what was the first atomic habit though? Like what was the first step? Because that first one is so important. So for somebody who's listening who's in this bad state, like what was the first atomic habit or step that kind of got things going? Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, th- th- I made a few rules for myself. No drinking alone at night. <laughs> that went away. That's a good. That's a good. Uh, that's a good rule. <laughs> yeah. So I, that was the end. You know, for the most part, that never happens anymore um, because I think it's a dangerous, slippery slope for me. And I'm not judging other people, but for me, it became it became a problem. Uh, two, I got up in the morning and spent a little time uh, doing some personal meditation. You know, got up a little bit earlier, 10, 15 minutes earlier. And spend more time just being able to not not pick up my phone and and get on social media and see what everyone else is doing, but spend some time reflecting on my myself. And I made a discipline to get at least twenty, ideally thirty minutes on the bike or on the treadmill, at least three times during the work week and every weekend day. And uh, I changed how I ate. I, I stopped eating really terrible foods that I was eating for comfort. I lost 30 pounds over the course of about a year and a half. Um, and and then there were other things. I, I started making changes in my job. I started sitting down with the folks I was working with and saying, things have to change. I started shedding roles and giving them up one by one. If you look at what the titles I was carrying three years ago, I was directing five different programs. And I, you I started the program at KU. 
right? Yeah. So at a very so young was, age. Yeah. So I was directing a transplant program, directing a heart pump, a mechanical pump, LVAD program, research program. Uh, so I started shedding these titles. And it's funny because people started noticing this. And my friends across the country were like, why are you, are you okay? You're yeah. It's, it's the opposite of what you should do. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so like, and I remember this because you and I, when we first met, I had you on uh, back then I was with uh, Petrero. So I had you on, on the show back then. And so it's kind of, I think it was right when you started doing these changes, like you're getting in better shape, you're posting these uh, very like open book uh, posts online, kind of sharing your personal life and you're shedding these things, which are like all the opposite things you should do when you want to rise to, you know, quote unquote, uh, uh, this great legacy in medicine. How, how did your peers react and how did you handle that? Fascination would probably be the shortest <laughs> word I could think of to say people were, they were intrigued. They, a lot of my friends would call me and say, literally, are you okay? And I got comfortable saying, you know what? I'm not so sure I am okay. I'm mm. working on getting some help, you know, took some time to figure out how to start really addressing that. I, I, I read a book and here it is right here, which I highly recommend. Uh, I don't want to talk about it by Terry real Terrence real. I haven't heard that uh, book. So I'm buying that to my library. Yeah. It's not a new book. It's been around since the nineties, but he's an exceptionally, uh, gifted and intellectually, uh, profound behavioral psychologist who does family therapy in Boston and wrote this book like 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. he does a good job breaking it down about why men struggle in, in ways that, that men struggle with their mental health and what's it, what it is me. why is that by the way oh i mean there's a lot in the book but i think that the couple things first of all we have childhood trauma most of us have something mm -hmm. that we probably haven't dealt with right and i think that everybody's got their own thing and i think that men tend to masculinize uh life experiences and there's this patriarchy that happens where fathers teach their sons to sort of suppress touching, touching base with themselves and about what's really maybe been traumatizing from their childhood. And there are other forms of childhood that, that happen beyond what happens that we're experiencing from our parents. I mean, you can have trauma from people outside your family, obviously. Oh, definitely. People experiencing bullying <laughs> and, and all those kind of things. I, I was one that did experience that. Yeah. And so I think the reality is, I think the culture of patriarchy and masculinity, and this is what Terry Real talks about in his book, it teaches boys to grow up as men that they should like be tough and they shouldn't cry and they shouldn't um, be weighted down by things that might be buried in their past. And so what ends up happening is that the defense mechanisms kick in and these men grow up to become professionals and dads and husbands and rather than appropriately dealing with what's happened in their life, they medicate with work. They medicate with yeah. compulsions. They medicate with alcohol and drugs. They medicate with rage. They medicate with, um, you know, being addicted to uh, getting likes on social media, which any mm -hmm. of us can fall prey to the dopamine hits that come with all these things. Yeah, because as a man, I think this is the big thing about, about being men is that for us, the way that we measure ourselves is through like like uh, the value that we provide, right? And a lot of that can be justified by, by how much money you make, the titles you get, the likes you get, all these different things. Um, right. 
And and I think you know you're you know this this concept of like uh, uh, the patriarchy gets like uh, it, it runs amok in today's culture. But I think the 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 point that you made is is valid, and I agree with it. Which is you know I think there's part of there are things about being a man and masculinity in terms of like managing your emotions, being being cool under pressure, and everything. I agree with those things. At the same time. You have to address your your traumas from the past, and there's nothing wrong with it. And I think, uh, like some of the some of the most quote unquote masculine and manual, manly men I see today, all agree and say, "Hey, like, look, as a man, if you're dealing with depression, if you're feeling down, if you want to commit suicide, you need like you should talk about these things. You should find an outlet to to manage it." There's some men who I see just they swing on the other side of the pendulum where they're constantly emotional, reactive, and everything. And I don't think that's what you're saying. Your thing is that you have to address these things to understand yourself deeply to, you know, like for me, so there's certain things from my past that I realize that it explains why I have certain reactions and behaviors given certain situations. And I've been able to like, you know, manage that. Is that, is that kind of what, 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 what you're, what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of layers to what creates kind of the bad spot that people can find themselves in, which is where I was about three years ago, maybe four years ago now. And um, the other thing about this was that created the pivot was I had experienced just enough success at a pretty young age in my career to realize that I didn't find it to be all that meaningful or fulfilling. You, you got to the top and, of the mountain and you're like, great, like who cares? <laughs> in a sense, yeah. I mean, by all worldly definitions, uh, you know, I've been involved with just, you know, something like 75 papers. And in the academic world, that's, that's one metric a lot. that you're, it's one metric. It's and a lot of my friends have published a lot more papers, but it's one metric. And I, I remember thinking, having this conversation with the several friends and it's like, well, how many more papers do I need to write before I'll feel like I've really made it? Like, what's the, oh, that's a good question. And that's here's the question. short answer. There is no number. It, it, there is no number where you just feel like, yep, that's it. That's the number. 100 papers, I got it now. I, I, I feel complete, right? Yeah. I remember when I was chasing my 50th paper, I remember thinking, this will be it. Like, I'll, I'll have made it. You know, this is this is meaningful. It doesn't mean that writing papers isn't meaningful. I mean, I, I've got some really... So I've got some papers that I've been able to write and participate in writing that I mean really matter to me uh, because they were they were maybe soul searching type work or they impact uh, the disease that I care for, which is uh, heart failure. They impact in such a meaningful way that it has ripple effects and and there's real power to that, no doubt. But I think the chasing publication because you need to have so many on your PubMed, you know, I think that it's very fleeting satisfaction again. You get the 10 minute uh, rush of dopamine when you see that your paper's out and then it's gone. And then you're on to the next one. Um, from a money standpoint, I started putting my money to work to start buying back my time because I realized that things, material things were wholly unsatisfying. I, I've, mm -hmm. I've become much more of a minimalist when it comes to stuff. I, I, I'd rather buy nice things and have less of them. I don't like how the stuff takes up space. And yeah. it's like, you know, a really good way to think about it. I've read a couple books on minimalism is, you know, the stuff is like a tenant taking up space in your house, but they're not paying rent. Paying rent. Oh, that's a great point. You know, you'll, so they're, you'll they're like taking up space and they're not paying rent. And it, it eventually, it eventually overwhelms you. 
right? And I think that we, once again, stuff, I feel like we use to medicate ourselves. It's another form oh, of Oh, totally. You, you'll find this interesting. Um, so first, there's this, there's this uh, quote uh, that your possessions one day will possess you, you know? And I always keep that in mind. And, you know, if you look at, um, you know, especially, he, what's up? <laughs> That's from Fight Club. Yeah. Oh, stuff is that really that, from Fight Club? I was trying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was trying to. Yeah, I was trying to figure out where that where that came from, but it was always in my head. Yeah, the nice. Well, if you go, you know, so for me, uh, consumer psychology is always a big big fascination of mine. So when you go to a a mall, um, they they specifically uh, design it so that if you think about all malls, when you're inside of a mall, everything looks the same. It's hard to find a map. Right. So you end up just walking through this maze. They have the same kind of music. So like sounds bouncing off everywhere. And so you're in the state of chaos. Psychologically, how do you bring your energy level down? You buy things, you know, and, and if you think about it, there's a there's a physical thing. Why are there no shopping carts in malls? It would make a lot of sense. Right. It's because when you buy things, you're physically carrying things. So you feel more anchored, more stable. And so this concept of just buying stuff, it just it, it's it's such a good point. So did you end up, um, do you end up like selling a bunch of stuff or like, do you just, are you just mindful of like how you buy? Like, how do you, how do you control that? Both. Yeah. I mean, I got rid of all kinds of stuff. I mean, we, we have a rule in our house now where it, even for my kids, if they, if they get something for birthday, for holidays, uh, if, if they, we, we, we have some, um, some money teaching skills with an allowance and we teach them to give and we teach them to save. And so if they go to the store and they buy something or they get something from grandma and grandpa, the rule is whatever they add to their room, something else has to go out. And I have the same rule for Ooh, my own. That's a, and, that's, I'm going to use that. That's a, that's a good one. I well, like that. And a lot of people have done this. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the only person that does it this way, but I, I think that what that has taught our children is we do not accumulate stuff and hoard stuff. And you have to look at your room and say, look, I've, I've only got so much space for my Legos. So I got this new Lego that I really like, but I'm gonna have to give the other Lego to my brother or maybe just donate it. And, and so we've, we've been teaching them that it's really not healthy to have your room overrun with, with stuff. And, and much of the toys that the kids have, which is no different than adults, just sits in some back of the sh uh, shelf or back of the drawer. You don't even remember it's there. Exactly. Until you go and clear it out. It, so once again, it's just taking up space, cluttering your life, making it something that you can and, and your mind space too, right? Yeah, and your mind space. So, so yeah, I, I started just basically throwing stuff away, giving it away, selling stuff, liquidating as much as I could. And then, you know, I, I think I took the same approach with clothes. It, it's actually interesting. I, 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 I beefed up my wardrobe and bought nicer clothes. But then it, I, it makes a huge difference, right? Yeah, but then and, I got rid of all the other stuff. Replace it as quickly. And that's, yeah, that's the Patagonia effect. That's why Patagonia is such a big phenomenon. Is because the quality is so good that you can literally repair the, the coat over and over and over again. You can toss it in the wash. I mean, I have Patagonia coats that are eight, nine years old, right? I don't, I haven't replaced them. There's no reason to. Yeah. Um, so you start to realize like there's this value of focusing on less stuff but higher quality stuff meaningful stuff and even and it starts to even create emotions and memories with you and you've got all these pictures of 
you in this coat or in this jacket or in this suit and tie. And, you know, like part of what made that picture uh, my daughter and I go viral was literally the outfit itself. And, uh, you know, I think it's fun to have some nice stuff. It's fun to have nice clothes, but you don't need as much as you think you need. And I think you can save up a lot of space in the closet. Instead of buying a bigger closet, you find a way to make the closet you have work. Yeah. You know? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you something you, you'll, that you'll appreciate. I'm happy you're mentioning this. Like, you know, for me, having started my own business, I joined a few masterminds, like, you know, with other entrepreneurs and everything. And it's a lot of these guys, my age, some of them are in their twenties. You know, they make a lot of money. Like, and when I say a lot, I mean like millions a month and they don't have a big company. And some of them have like huge houses, lots of cars, all these things. And I was at, there's a part of me where I'm like, oh, that's, that's really cool. But then I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? I think that's, that's the problem is that when you make a lot of money, you buy all these things. And so then rather than being innovative as an entrepreneur, you get a lot more conservative and protective because the risk means that you can lose all the stuff. Like part of the reason why my business has been able to grow and I've been able to do, do, do the things that I've always been dreaming of doing is I don't have a lot of things to risk. Like I don't have like a bunch of stuff. I don't have like all these different things. I mean, assets are, are fine, but like even me, like we're, we're thinking about uh, uh, buying a house and there's this inclination where I'm like, oh, I can, I can get a really, really big house. But then I thought if I buy a really big house, I'm going to have to fill it with a bunch of stuff. And like just that, that idea by itself, I'm like, I don't, I don't like, I don't want it. And I, and I, again, this is why, like, I, I wanted to have you on and talk about these things. Cause I think it's important to share like these transformations and how you think, because it just takes like one thing for somebody to read. And you, it's almost like you, you break a spell or you challenge a belief and then you realize like, yeah, why do I need to do that stuff? Like, you know, I don't know if it was your post or who I saw many years ago that I thought like, yeah, like what I can, I can have a good career and everything, but that shouldn't come at the expense of my family and family time, you know? Well, or just your time. I mean, I think that's the other thing is people don't stop and think about how much time they spend at work and, and how many other things they might be able to do in life if they, if they weren't working to generate the income that they need to pay for the things that they want in their house that now requires debt a lot of times, and then the mortgage payment and the car payment, and now they're a slave, right? Now they're just yeah. slaves to their W-2, right? You know, so that's the other part of this is I have learned that what I really want to put my money to work for is to get me time, right? Because mm. we have don't have so much and the reality is none of us know how much we have, but we know it's finite and we know we can't get a single minute back. So you can always go get more stuff. You can always build that bigger house, but what you can't do is get those memories back that you could have had, that you could have made. Uh, you can't go back and spend that Saturday at the ballpark mm. with kids when you went in and participated in the hustle of, you know, making yourself, highly productive at work. And again, there's seasons for everything. I, I, I want to be clear. And I have been in those seasons and I have dived into, and, and, the, and there's times where you have to do, have to do those things. I, I think you can't let the pendulum swing too far to the other end because we do need to recognize that work is necessary for us to have livelihoods, right? But 
the whole point, and this is how I concluded with the post itself, was we are not supposed to be uh, living to work. We are here for our jobs to create a life. You know, we work to live. And mm. I really think that we lose sight of that in all the noise. And we start to think in the morning, the first thing that we're thinking about in the morning is what we got to go do at work. And if, if look, if you're passionate about it and, and it's really exciting, the project you're working on, like today I get to do all kinds of things. And I mean, I got up this morning, I was genuinely excited about my work day. One of the things I did today was I went off to my daughter's school and uh, it was like, bring your dad and talk about his job day. And so I've done this with all three of my kids. And so she's the third. And so I brought 10 stethoscopes and a blood pressure cuff and my white coat. And we talked about heart health. But this morning I, I gave a big presentation uh, for the group in Oklahoma. Later tonight, uh, we got a session talking about heart failure careers that goes till nine o'clock. You know, and it's all good stuff. But a part of my it's day, balance. Was, part of my, yeah, exactly. Part of my day was spending some time with my baby girl in her school, in her environment. And it meant, you could tell, just she lit up just like at the daddy dog. Just me being there and being able to be proud of your dad coming to school with you and seeing your other classmates. I mean, remember how that was when we were kids? Like getting to see your parent in their normal work environment and maybe getting to go to work with them. You know, you're proud of your parents and you want to see what they do. And and so give that to your children. You know, give those moments to, to recognize that you can take a little pause right in the middle of the workday and go do that. And, and that's one of the reasons why I shifted roles was to create that flexibility opportunity. And my long-term vision is to eventually get to a point where very early in life, I can walk away from dependence on a W-2 completely. And, and again, that's, that's through thoughtful, careful, disciplined reinvestment of the money that we make to, to build a, an opportunity to create the passive income streams that allow for not being dependent on an employer someday. And, and not having Absolutely. to work till 70. Like, I, I'm not saying you don't want to work till 70. If you want to, great. But you don't want to be in a position where you have to work till 70. I think that that's a choice that you can make early in life to say that's not going to be me. If you don't want hundred percent. hundred percent. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. My, so my father is a surgeon. Um, fortunately, he didn't take this route. But some of his friends, you know, and we're talking, my, you know, my father's uh, Iraqi. And so a lot of his friends are, you know, immigrant Arab surgeons. So they, you know, bought big houses, all these things, nothing wrong with that. But, you know, a lot of these guys are like, you know, my father is 77, he's retired. So his day, like right now he's with my, he's with my wife. Uh, they, they're out to some errands. His day is like whatever he wants to do. And he comes over to, you know, spend time with his grandson, and everything versus some of his friends. They're still working at, in their seventies because they, they have these houses, they have all these expenses and everything. Um, and, you know, the way that I, and again, I think what's important because a lot of times people say like, well, you know, why is it important to share these things on social media and everything? I, I personally be, I'm very big on culture and community and everything. And I think we forget about that here in America. Um, and I think there's, there's a, somebody like you, somebody like me, we have a responsibility to the people who are younger than us, who are getting started and everything to demonstrate. Yeah. Like, look, this is how you become a great business person, a clinician, et cetera. But then this is how you should live your life as a father, as a husband. Like these are important things. And the stuff you do at work, th those are only to support this stuff. It's not to get like more, you know, 
accolades, et cetera. Like all those things are fine. But again, like I think that it, it has an impact to change, change behaviors, right? And I think like, look, you, you had one post that had an impact on God knows how many thousands of people this past week where they said, I, I'm going to spend more time with my family and I should do this, I should do that. You know, and over time, like, I, I think that's where you start having better uh, uh, professionals with better mental health, better family lives, et cetera, because it's not just like hustle and grind culture, you know? Yeah, and that was, you know, I, I definitely post a number of types of categories of content, as you know. Um, nine out of 10 of the posts that I put on social media have nothing to do with my family, nothing to do with my personal life. So people have asked me, well, why do you do that? And it's for the intended effect that you just outlined. I want to be able to show people that there's a life on the other end of that job. And just to be vulnerable, put yourself out there and say, you know, this is me with my daughter at the daddy daughter dance. This is what I experienced. This is how I felt. And here's a picture. And it just, it's raw. And I think people are not used to that, particularly on more of the LinkedIn platform, mm -hmm. which is so much more designed to be focused on professional um, roles. And I, I think it struck a chord because I think people needed to see that and needed to have that reminder. I didn't expect it to literally go viral. I've never seen a post of mine ever do that. Not even I, close. I, my, my business uh, is supported through LinkedIn. And yeah, I, I evaluate a lot of content and I was like, this is, but, but, but think about it. There's something to that. Like, why? Why well, did that blow up? Is, it, it wasn't because of my post. It's because of the audience. Like that went viral because of the audience, not because of me. It's because the people who were scrolling through their feed had something about that uh, message, the picture, that I think that they got to have a mirror put up in front of them. Mm. And they got to see, you know, wait a second. Did I have an experience as a girl with my dad and the daddy-daughter dance? And so some of the people spoke about that experience and it triggered that, right? Some people are fathers and they see that and they're like, oh yeah, I did that with my daughter too. And you saw a lot of dads put pictures of their daughters in the comments and the mentions. And I was, thought that was really touching, you know, other dads saying, yeah, I've been there. I know how that felt. Thank you for sharing because it really was a powerful emotion that I had. And you just reminded me of that experience. You know, you saw the moms cheering on the dads, you know, saying, you know, we want our husbands, we want the fathers of our children to remember to come home and to be present and mm -hmm. to not skip out on the Saturday ball game or the Saturday daddy daughter dance. I mean, the moms were saying, yes, we need this from the men in our life. Right. Uh, to be the fathers that they that the children need them to be. So, again, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to present myself as this idyllic, you know, have it all together. Father, I, I hope that people here in my story, I've learned these lessons through failing. You know, that is how I got here. And now I'm trying to, in a very vulnerable way, share what I'm learning so that other people can learn, too. And, and be reminded, you know, at, by maybe what they see at, as that mirror is put up in front of them. Oh, I, I, absolutely. And again, like, you know, it's, and there's something I wanted to share. Yeah. So, you know, these things like these posts and everything, like including this conversation, like, look, think about what happened. You, you made that post. It had an impact on all these people. It, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. 
now we're having this conversation. We're both growing as like husbands, as fathers, you know, and then including the people who are listening to this, you know, one guy who's is a friend who I, whose work I follow is a guy named my, uh, Mike Cernovich, who um, has a great newsletter. And he put out one about, about parenting. And I want to read this uh, part to you um, where he talks about, uh, you know, children want your attention. There's a saying that goes quantity times quality time. Everyone wants to find a loophole to this, especially men. Quote, I'm not ignoring my children. I'm building a better life for them. Then why do you turn on ESPN when you get home? You need to decompress. So does your wife. Oh, and your children need your attention. And I think it's such a good point because, like, it's so easy to justify, oh, I'm working hard. I'm doing this for these. But it's, I think people forget why, like, like why do you go to work? Why do, why do we make money, right? It's for these people, you know? You know? And again, like something that um, uh, one of my one of my friends who started a company many years ago, you know, him and his wife uh, uh, like lived out of an RV with their kid, and I was like, man, that's 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 really that must have been really something. How is that? And he made a good point. He's like, he's like, dude, the kid doesn't care. He did like, and I thought about that. I'm like, yeah, the kid does like kids don't really care like how like your house or your car, all these things like. You know, they just want to spend time with your with with their mom and dad. You know, that's completely true. I mean, I grew up in a family of five. I had two younger brothers, and when I was in fifth grade, we lived in a two bed apartment as a family of five. And we all, but the boys, we all bunked up together. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Like we were at camp all the time. I mean, I was the oldest brother, so I guess maybe I had a little bit more. Uh, of space. <laughs> and so maybe my youngest brother wouldn't say it was as good of an experience for him. But the point is, I didn't know that I was missing anything by not mm. having my own bedroom, by not having more stuff in the house. I, I felt very wealthy as a child uh, because I had my parents and I had my brothers. And I think that that is what wealth really is, is having time and having people in your life who love you. And, and knowing that. And I think that when I say that, people kind of say, oh, that's like Hallmark cheesy. That's not really, I mean, come on. But the reality is, if they stop and think about it, you know, when do they really feel fulfilled in life? It, mm. it isn't after another eight hour, 10 hour, 12 hour grind of a day where you maybe got into a conflict with three or four different people at work, your boss, whatever. Like, that's not what you're excited about in life. I mean, and you, you justify tolerating that because you come home and you say, look what I'm doing for my family. Look at the, look what I'm providing for them. I'm protecting them. I, I'm putting shelter over their head. This is all the stuff we say to make ourselves feel better about it. But if we're checked out, you know, all evening and we're distracted by our phone or we're putting on the TV to decompress or we're having a drink because we need to medicate a day, you know, we're missing out on the opportunity to really enjoy the children that are in our life that only have so many years where they worship you. They, they pretty much worship you at, at that stage of life. I mean, it's a great point. You know, I think Dave, Dave Chappelle talked, you know, about my dad, you know? I, I still yeah. do love my dad, but, admire him, but, but it's not like when you were a kid. Yeah. yeah. Dave, Chappelle, you know, Dave Chappelle has this bit where he talks about like, <laughs> he's like, you know, when, when my kids were, were younger, I would come home and they're like, yeah, dad is home and everything. He's like, he's like, now that I come home, they're like, they're like, Oh, it's Mr. Mr. Broken promises. And it was kind of sad, but it was a good point. Perfect. Yeah. So something else I wanted to kind of shift to is, um, 
how you look at being a, a good husband, right? Like what, what are some things that kind of, kind of come to mind for you? Cause there, there's also a balance of that as well. Yeah. I mean, again, I, this, this question is always hard because I think it's a completely different struggle in so many ways. I mean, choosing to love your child is a very natural, um, biological, mm. kind of unconditional programming that I think most of us as parents just automatically get. I mean, there's exceptions. We know there's bad parents out there. There's psychopaths. There's all those exceptions. I think when you look at relationships like marriage, there's much more of a choice that goes into that from the beginning of the courtship to continuing every single day to, um, to participate in this choice. And I, I say that from thinking of, of the recipient, right? I mean, there are times where I think, I don't know why she puts up with me, right? And, you know, she chooses to, right? And, and so that's why I say that is because the, the love that I see uh, a mother have for her child is just a very different than the choice that I benefit from for her to choose to love me, you know? So when I, I say that as a context, because I think you have to think about the relationships in that framework, because it, it speaks to, once again, the, the, the habits and the disciplines and the daily, you know, the daily inputs that we choose to put our time into, right? So, and like maintaining your car or maintaining your, your physical health, if you don't take the discipline approach to invest in those inputs, then you're going to get what you get, what you put in, right? And so I think that people overcomplicate um, these relationships. They focus on what it looks like on TV or what it looks like in our minds ideally. But in reality, the best marriages, and I'm not going to claim to have that, but I think that when I look at who has the best marriages, I think one of the things I, when I ask them, you know, these mentors of mine and say, you know, what, what is it that created 35 years of marriage? And it really does look like you guys still love each other. And I think that the secret that you continue to hear these older couples, more senior couples say is, you know what? I recognize that this is who I chose and I'm going to invest in them no matter how I'm feeling about them today. And I'm going to choose to continue to contribute to growing this relationship and recognizing that I don't have it figured out. And I, I like to talk about gratitude a lot and vulnerability a lot. And in this kind of gratitude category, I think figuring out like how you can take stock of what you have and being able to use vulnerable word, words like, I am sorry, I was wrong, um, I love you, uh, please forgive me. It, it, these are really powerful words. And if we don't have the discipline of finding ways to say, you know, this is where I fell short, then we're really going to have a hard time um, taking accountability and the relationship is going to continue to erode. And so I, I think that the other thing is people look at parenting and they say, well, if I'm a really good parent, then I'm automatically going to be really good at marriage. They're completely different things. They're completely different disciplines, right? And so, in fact, I think you can get in trouble if you focus too much on being that ideal parent. You could be the best parent. But if you're falling short at the relationship with your spouse, with your partner, it's really difficult to uh, 
um, enjoy the benefits of that going well. And it's also, I think, kind of hard to be the best parent you can be if you're not doing that as well as well. So I'm trying to answer this in a way that um, is very careful to recognize that I'm still a learner in that space uh, because this is hard. And I think that I think people need to give themselves a lot of compassion and have compassion for the loved ones in their life as well, because it's really, really hard. Um, and, you know, most, as we know, the majority of marriages don't last very long. Uh, seven years is the average life of a, of a marriage. And I think for those that admit that there's a lot of marriages that maybe extend many years, but they aren't necessarily strong relationships and they kind of coexist. And I think that happens a lot. I it's think, hard. you know, and you, you, you made an analogy earlier. I just want to bring back up that it's so true, which is, you know, you said that, and you know, a marriage is just like, you know, maintaining your car or your, your, your health, like it requires discipline and, 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 and attention to versus like with a child, like, because it comes from the child comes from you naturally, like it's very natural to want to care and, and do what you want for the child. But for marriage, it's, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, it's not natural at all. And, yeah. and I'll, t I'll share, um, you know, uh, one a couple of thoughts one is like i completely agree about like this concept of not only gratitude but these vulnerable world words about i'm sorry i love you etc and i i don't believe in the separation of like i don't believe too much in like work-life balance um and, and i mean that in the sense that like you you have to there are places you're going to have imbalances um uh, but who you are at home and how you treat your family like that'll make its way to work and vice versa you know, yeah. and it should be like that. Um, the other side, which I think you'll appreciate, there's a, a, a couple, Jason and April Carl, who are very good friends of mine, and they have this beautiful marriage. I have two beautiful boys. And many years ago, I remember before I was married, I asked him, I was like, hey, like, give me some advice on marriage. And my buddy Jason said something that, like, at the time, I was like, this guy's crazy. Why would he say something like that? It totally makes sense. Now he's like, in our marriage, number one for me is my wife. Number one for her is me. The kids are second and it never, it never clicked until I realized that that's the way it should be. Because again, it's natural to put the kids first. And I think a lot of people who are like, Oh, I'm a great parent. I, I focus on the kids and everything. They think that the marriage is the same thing and they just kind of go about doing their thing and letting the marriage, like, you know, just like with health, it's like, Oh, if I just eat whatever and work out, you know, whatever. like, you know, it'll take care of itself. And it, it doesn't, you know, like, Look, I don't know about you, but as a, as a guy, a lot of times, like when I'm at home, like I, you know, I'm around, um, but I'm not like, you know, like one thing I've noticed, or at least I've read, I've noticed with my wife and other guys I talk to, your your wife needs to have a few deep, meaningful conversations a week with you, like they yeah, need that, <laughs> yeah, at least. And a lot of times, like th during the workday and everything, I just come home, like I want to be hanging out, but not doing that, and I I have to put mental effort and say, okay, when was the last time I had a deep, meaningful conversation with my wife, you know? And I think that Very you become true. a good, yeah, you become a good spouse when you consciously put effort to it, just like working out, like fitness, like anything else, you know, including your career, right? Cause you can't, you can't just go about your career and be like, oh, I'm just going to like kind of work hard and I'll get promoted and everything. You have to put conscious effort and thought into it. I think the same thing with a marriage. Yeah, and I think the other thing is just working on being a really good listener. I think we speak mm. a lot, talk mm -hmm. a lot. I think we, I think the masculine patriarchal culture that we're raised in uh, teaches boys to grow up to be men who 
speak and who want to explain everything and want to uh, provide additional, you know, very verbose language to assert for the world that we know our position on any given topic, right? And I think that women culturally are, are taught much better, I think, to grow up spending time listening. I think part of that is because our cultures, uh, especially my generation, I think girls grew up being taught the boys speak first, the boys go first. The, so, so they're very naturally bent toward being good listeners. So I don't think it takes as much um, takes as much effort to like work on listening for her to listen to me. But I think for me, if I really want to, uh, like you said, provide that need for her, I have to do a better job just listening. And, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I suck at it, but the reality is I, I acknowledge that this is exactly what needs to happen in order to find more success in that, in that interaction, in that interpersonal reaction. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 I completely agree. And I think, again, like, you know, just so the audience understands where I'm coming with, masculine and feminine are, are qualities that exist both within males and females. And I think, like, the concept of listening, intuition, like, these are, like, very feminine qualities that men, because we're very masculine, don't naturally have. And we have to put time and effort into it. You know, like, it's very natural, I think, for most men. I'll speak for myself. It's very natural for me to when there's a problem it's like okay i got a solution and i think one of my in medical school one of my um god i, I can't remember i forgot I, I remember this one of my professors dr steven sandorn he's a nephrologist he was he was like um he's like you know sometimes when you're dealing with a patient there's an inclination you know there's a saying like don't just stand there do something there's the opposite to that which is like don't do anything. Just stand there. Because sometimes, mm -hmm. like, there's nothing to do aside from just sit there and just, like, listen. Like, there's nothing to do. You don't have to do anything. And a lot of times I think I have to, I have to consciously remind myself that, not only in business, but even with my wife is that and families, that a lot of times you don't have to provide a solution. You don't have to say anything. You just have to sit there and listen, you know? And God, God knows it takes a lot of practice because if you haven't been able to tell, like, I have a podcast for a reason. I love talking. <laughs> yeah. but the podcast has definitely made me better at listening you know so well, well i mean like you said you're practicing you're interviewing questions skills and that's really what relationships are about is you shouldn't just be you know talking all day long you should be asking questions too i mean you go to a party right you go to any social gathering who do you want to spend time with at the party you want to spend time with the person assuming that's not too loud and you can actually hear what people are saying you want to spend time with the person who's has the interesting questions, right? Those are, those are fun dialogues to have. And so I've learned that when I, I, I have a fair amount of social anxiety that might surprise some people, but I do. That surprise is still surprises me, man. When you told me this a few years ago, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm a natural introvert. So I struggle sometimes and I, I, I've had to learn how to overcome the struggle of public speaking. I've had to learn how to overcome the struggle with walking into a room where I don't know people where not. With the discipline I've learned is if I can walk in the room and find somebody that will let me ask them questions, I will find a much more enjoyable experience because I'll be talking to someone who I think really wants to have a conversation with me. And I've learned like asking people questions is the best way to get a conversation going is just being willing to say, I'm interested in you. Tell me about why you 
chose this profession. You know, for for a lot of us, if you begin with, tell me about your work. Oh, people have plenty to say to that question. But if you want to go deeper, it gets really kind of fun because you can say, you know, well, tell me how you got into the concrete pouring business. Like exactly, exactly how did you fall on that? I mean, are you part of the mafia? I mean, like, tell me a, a funny story, right? I mean, so it's I think- It's so true. My point is just that in life, I think when you want to disarm somebody and you want to really engage with them, the art of asking the questions is, and the discipline of asking the questions is really the fastest way to engage with people, as opposed to just telling them about yourself and blabbing about your life. And I mean, people are kind of interested, but the truth is people aren't really that interested. I mean, and I can't blame them. I mean, people are not that interested in you, in me, right? Like. People aren't staying up at night thinking about me. I, I, I know that, right? Uh, I'm not really necessarily staying up at night thinking about some random person on social media either. So I think we tend to make everything about ourselves and that's what gets us in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can make the other person sitting across from you the interesting person, you can really get some deep conversations, some deep vulnerable kind of kind of you know interpersonal uh, jive that really can be a lot of fun. Oh, I, I totally agree. Somebody um, uh, on Twitter uh, paid me a really nice compliment, which because I, I posted some book on persuasion or something, and they and they tweeted that they're like, "You're actually the best conversationalist I've ever met." And I I remember speaking to this person, and part of the reason why that was was that many years ago I realized like, you know, I kind of talk too much, so I made this point that when I go to events and everything. I, I I studied and watched Cal Fussman and Larry King, two of the greatest interviewers, I think. And I was just like, oh, they just ask really good questions. And I just spent time asking questions. And I, I realized that a good feeling is when I go to these events where I'm tempted to talk, but I spend time just asking people questions. And what's, what's fascinating, I'm sure you've seen this as well, is there's some people when you ask them a question like, okay, like the concrete pouring business. So it's like, hey, how did you get into this? They're like, oh, well, I, you know, I did it. At, because my dad did it or, or whatever. And you follow up, you're like, well, I feel like there's a deeper story. Like, well, how did you really get into it? And they just light up because I don't think there's some people who have been dying to share something, but no one ever cared to ask them ever. Absolutely true. Right? I mean, you know? think about it from the other perspective. If someone asks you really, no, really tell me what you do. Like, what is your day like? And why do you do it? We all want someone to ask us that question. Right. There's nothing because everybody wants to tell their story. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is we're not sure who wants to hear the story. So we're just floating around. And that's why I think that's a big reason why we're drawn to social media narratives is because we want to get in on a good story. Sometimes we're yeah. listening to the story and sometimes we're telling the story. And I think that, you know, whatever the hot story is, we want to be part of being in that room. And, and, I think the problem with social media is it's made it harder for us to do that in real life. Like we're, we're doing it in the social media environment, but then we're struggling. I think it's like we've become handicapped to, to not be able to, to engage with people uh, in a, in an actual room, you know, because (laughs) isn't that funny. (laughs) It's like, we have to do everything in 140 characters, right? So we, everything's rapid fire. And so you walk into a room and everybody's got their beverage and you're gathering, you're only going to be there for two hours. You mill around the room. You want to shake everybody's hand. But like, did you have any conversation with anybody in the room that was beyond like, Oh, did you see that 
catch on the football game or, oh, you know, what do you think about this piece of the news? Like there's nothing there's nothing but superficial conversation. So I, I think I, what I've learned is rather than hating to go to those events, because I traditionally have hated to go to those kind of events because of that, I've learned, well, maybe I need to find one or two people that maybe I can actually have a deeper conversation with. And I know that sounds kind of weird. Uh, and there's definitely people that don't don't want it, right? But there's other people that are just like, they're begging for someone to ask them that second question, not just like, mm -hmm. tell me what's your job, but like, tell me why you do it. Tell me how you got into that space. And they open up and then you've got, you know, 30 minutes of just all kinds of interesting things that you can learn. So, and yeah, and a lot of things that, you, oh no, totally. And I was going to say, you know, I want to be mindful of your time. So we'll wrap up in a little bit, but you know, uh, you, one of the, uh, and I'm, I want to ask you uh, before I share you share mine, what's the most difficult question that somebody's ever asked you? Like just in conversation where, where you're like, wow, I like, I've never thought about that. Nobody asked me that. Anything come to mind? Um, man, I, I'm really cool with questions. I really feel like vulnerability is what brings us together. So I don't think there's any question that really, um, like makes me really, really uncomfortable, but I think probably the category of questions that would be difficult would be when people are asking me to, to bring up elements of my childhood that were, uh, you know, maybe a little bit difficult, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, think when people say, well, you know, what was seventh grade like, you know, seventh grade was really hard for me. You know, it was really, it was really, I experienced, I went through puberty really late, you know, and so I was like six inches shorter than all the other boys in my class and uh, got bullied a lot. And it definitely was formative, but I don't like talking about it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that's a category that is like, if you were to say, you want to make me uncomfortable real fast, ask me to describe my well, early adolescent experience. And not, I'll, not uncomfortable. I'll a very picture of this awkward kid with braces and big glasses <laughs> and fat and, you know, all these other things. Yeah. Not, not, yeah, not, so not, not uncomfortable, but, but a question or, or thing that will kind of like, uh, you, you're dumbfounded. Oh, right? okay. like not, not uncomfortable, but just like, you didn't have an answer to. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I encounter all kinds of questions where I like, I don't have an answer. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you when, even when today, when you ask me, tell me about how you do marriage successfully, I, 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 don't, I don't have a great answer for that. I mean, that was not an easy question because I think that I wouldn't put myself up there as someone that does it well, but, but, uh, so, so that's an example, but I think that there's a lot of questions that I'm just like, I, I don't know. So, okay. Well, in, in, in wrapping up, I'll share with you the question that I got. And this is like, um, it was like m many years ago, I was like at a party. I don't even remember who this was, but it was a par party. And there was, um, <laughs> there was some girl who had like quite a few drinks, you know, cause it was, you know, we're, we're all hanging out and everything. Yeah. And I think she did this to be funny, but it, it, it was very metaphysical and like an out of body of experience when I heard this, she was, she's standing she's like, Oh, well, can I can ask you a question. And you know, we're, we're having, I'm like, yeah, you can ask me anything. And she goes, who do you think you are? And I was like, what? And she's like, who do you think you are? Like, not like as a joke, like, who do you think you are? But like, who do you think you are? And I remember thinking, I, I've spent the last few years mulling that question over, and I, I still don't have like quite an answer yet. 
But that's that's one thing I'll, I'll put to you and then to the audience to kind of reflect on. It's like, who do you think you are? Because that's that was one question that as much as I talk, I don't really have an answer to that right now. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a good that's a good example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Dr. Sauer, thanks for spending time with us. I will, a couple quick, quick rapid fire questions and we'll, we'll let you go. First is you and I, we share a love for reading books. What are some books that you're reading these days that kind of, uh, you know, have your attention or maybe something that a book that you've been gifting uh, quite often to people? I mean, uh, I mentioned uh, Turret's Reels. I, that was a recent read. I read that list this summer. Uh, another book I've gone back to recently um, that I've been recommending just because I think it helps give perspective is just a classic uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, Victor Frankl. Oh, by Victor Frankl. That's a great one. Yeah. I think it's just good to, just to have it nearby and pull out some of the anecdotes of the perspective that, that he shares in that book. Um, so there's a couple of examples, but um, uh, trying to think if there's anything that's like really pressing, I've been doing some nonfiction. So the Lincoln highway, I was reading that recently and it's just good to kind of, it's just really well written. Um, so, yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, and then the last thing, uh, and then we'll, we'll let you go. Uh, I always like to ask this question. So pretend you have a, you know, a, a billboard that's taken out in every major city and a text. Actually, I need to just make it a text notification. Text notification comes out on everybody's phone every morning that they're going to see every day for a year. What message do you put on that phone? You, yeah, you used to ask this question with the billboard, and now it's the, yeah. Now it's a text. Out? Now it's a text. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was the billboard, but then I was like, but say it I was again. Like, say the question. I thought. What 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 message do you if if there is a notification that pops up on everybody's phone for a year, what message do you put on that phone and why? These days, I'd probably say, what's a memory that you are proud of today? That's it. I've that's, really spent a that's, lot of time that's, thinking, the, that's a good one. I've really spent a lot of time just thinking about how our life is a collection of memories and experiences. And really, it's about the people that go behind. That's where the memories come from, the emotion that comes from it. But so thinking about how we collect stuff instead of collecting stuff why don't we think about how we can collect memories and you don't you don't have any memory of the grind at work you have a memory of daddy daughter dance you know so and i think that you know you're only gonna have so many that are at the forefront you know top of mind and having them be really really special ones that make you feel great you know that's about to me that's what life is about that's that's fantastic and thank you so much for sharing that with me this is why i love being friends with you i love uh talking to you is that you share uh powerful powerful things like that and that's something i'm going to think about every single day what's a memory that i'm proud of today i love that man thanks for thanks for making my life better i thank you seriously well, awesome it's well, always a, it's always a pleasure chatting with you uh Omar. Oh. And thanks for being a good friend and putting out good content and accelerating the and amplifying the content of others who I think are, are, are sharing a message that you champion. So thank you for your work on that. Absolutely. Dr. Sauer, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to another episode of the State of MedTech. We will see you all next time. 
Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of the State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has a executive that you'd like to be on the show or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at katibandco.com. Take care. See you next time.